We took the wrong step years ago. We took the wrong step years ago. Already weeds are writing their scriptures in the sand. Look around and see the warning close at hand. We took the wrong step years ago. We took the wrong step years ago. Welcome to The Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock. How you doing? It's been a good week for me, I would say. Very challenging, lots of things to do. But I managed to, to stay pretty balanced, you know? I think that's step one in revolutionary organizing and everything on down. It's just being okay in your skin, being yourself, living in the world. That's really just step one before you can really do anything else. Uh, and that's going to put you in the right relationship to other people. Of course, you know, if you're not in the right relationship to the people around you, you're not going to be able to get right within yourself either. That's a totally solipsistic uh, goal. And I think that will be clear from the, the subject matter that I have today. Today I'm continuing uh, my Ivan Morris series into now that we have seen this connection that Nobuko Albury draws between Mishima and Nick Albury. Nick Albury, the son of the elderly uh, theater impresario that Nobuko Albury, fellow theater impresario, uh, marries uh, in her second marriage and he in his, as his final marriage. Um, she writes in this semi-autobiographical novel that is published right before, like, the last couple of years of the elderly Albury, Donald Albury's life, um, about this uh, relationship that she has with this character that is clearly half Mishima because he commits suicide in a very public kind of spectacular suicide, which... Nick Albury didn't do, but also very clearly Nick Albury for the squatting movement that he's involved in, for the groups of young men that gather around him as well. And Nobuko Albury is very, has a very kind of right-wing Japanese ethics in general that she injects in the narrative from time to time. She talks about her brother uh, pantomiming uh ritual suicide as part of um, just his idea of what it is to be a, a manly man. And uh, she sees all of that in the Nick Albury character and specifically in his hippie activities. And speaking of which, I have from Ivan Morris's third book of puzzles, which is called Foul Play and Other Puzzles, published in 1972. Puzzle number 47 is called Hippies, and it has a lovely, delightful little illustration. Uh, the, the illustrations in this book are by Hugh Casson. You may not know the name, but you'll know the illustrator when you see these illustrations. It's the quintessential 1960s, 70s. Uh, pencil drawing kind of style. 
Um, even John Lennon in his pencil drawings is basically, I think, imitating Hugh Casson, right? Uh, hippies, what conclusion can be drawn from these eight premises? A, everyone who works in the IBM data dump has shingles. B, all hippies are unhappy. C, no one whose mother is or has been a shaman suffers simultaneously from shingles and mixed dominance. D. Christoph L. Biggleswade works in the IBM data dump. E. All hippies are fluent in Capella and Fong. Are these languages, I guess? F. Christoph L. Biggleswade is a hippie. G. Everyone fluent in Capelle and Fang is a candidate for the doctor's degree, or else his mother is or has been a shaman. H. No one who is unhappy can be a candidate for the PhD. <laughs> this is devised by Professor H. Webb. Um, I don't know who that is. Maybe it'll come to me later and I'll update you. Um, but this connection of the IBM data dump, okay, with hippiedom, very noited, very noited, and shamans. And so the, the answer, by the way, what can be deduced is that, so Christoph Biggleswade, his mother, um, is, is, so it's, uh, his mother is or has been a shaman, it seems, and he can't. He also suffers from shingles, so he does not suffer from mixed dominance. And you can imagine how this would have been just hilarious to a member of a certain level of the ruling class. And that's what these puzzles are all about. I think these puzzles would have been uh, brain teasers that particularly people in intelligence uh, have to learn this kind of thinking, right? And that's that's the way that it's marketed as well on the back of the book. It's like, can you can you be a devious uh, thinker? Can you right? And that lines right up, of course, with Nick Albury being part of the Bit Network, which is some of the IRL rehearsals for the internet. Right? His memoir is called Rehearsal for the Year 2000, which I can't uh, still can't get my hands on. Uh, if I ever do, we're coming right back to this topic. But what he sees as happening in the year 2000 clearly is the implementation of the digital prison that we all find ourselves in today. And uh, he's working on the early iterations of that and the early social tech for that before the digital infrastructure is in place for any of the like surveillance aspects of it, right, or the constant communication aspects of it. Uh, but he's doing all those same things over the phone, over landlines, uh, with pencil and paper, with the technology of that time, just rehearsing uh, things like message boards and social media and all of that stuff, right? In the midst of uh, social movement, in the midst of a, a left-wing scene in Britain at the time that was genuinely revolutionary, pre-revolutionary, and he was steering it in a very much kind of post-left, individualistic, libertarian direction, right? As you will have been able to glean, I didn't go in and kind of dissect at all the manifesto that I read 
on the, in the previous episode, but you will be able to spot all the moments there. You know, use your birth certificate as a credit card. You know, kind of uh, UBI, uh, universal basic income, in the most dystopian possible way, is is I think very much what you know, just based on the kinds of milieu that uh, Nick Albury has his other foot in the whole time that he has the one foot in uh, hippiedom, right, tells you how to interpret all of those individualistic, libertarian, leftist pronouncements, right, and also sort of um, release all uh, mental patients into the general population. Every, every local community can benefit from having someone around who's a little bit out there, uh, that what does that remind you of? Jim Jones was getting people released out of uh, proper mental care, proper proper state-run care, and uh, dismantling you know setting the stage for the dismantling of care homes, which was proceeding in Britain under uh, Corona, under Corona very very quickly. Uh, Corona was funneled deliberately into care homes. This is not any kind of conspiracy theory or anything. It is very well documented, very clear that this was deliberately done. Uh, the NHS is being uh, controlled demolitioned as a partial result of, of all this, right? We know all, we can connect it to all of this uh more recent history, but that's what you get from this very libertarian view of revolution of just, yeah, everybody get real groovy in your heart and come together at a music festival specifically, the music festival. And, and indeed, this is a well-documented function of a feast, right, feasting, and uh, the festival in anthropology, you can see that it does form this function of providing a break from everyday life and also for playing around with new social forms. We're going to try a different thing today. Just today, we have a king for a day or whatever, right? You many, many examples of this. And those things can become models where people say, hey, we would like to live this way every day. And then it becomes a, a vehicle for change of the entire uh, society. and But the, the catch is that elites know this, and they have been using feasts and feasting and uh, ritual uh, settings for millennia to affect their desires and to change society and to change humanity in the ways that they want to do. And so, of course, um, you get people like Nick Albury jumping in and getting on the scene and substituting their vision of revolution for a visions that would more authentically be coming from the people, from the working class, uh, right? And you can see that very clearly in what I'm going to share with you today, which is a book about Nick Albury's whole scene by a gentleman named John Cruzy. It's called Waiting for Utopia, the Albion Free State, Windsor Free Festivals, and Radical Britain. So I'm going to just be reading this 
Uh, it's it's a very un it's a decidedly unnoited book. It doesn't have a critique of capital. It doesn't have a concept of class struggle at all. No sense that it's it's at all strange that so many of these uh, leaders of this movement come from the aristocracy, come from very much the British establishment, and no sense of discomfort with the British army stepping in and helping provide venues for this thing. So I will be adding that element into it. And that's what uh, you're getting here today. So there's a kind of like militant pastoralism that becomes uh, is one element of the left in, in this time. Right, elevating uh, dissent like the 1381 Peasants' Revolt, the Levelers and the Diggers of 1649. Um, you have Captain Swig. You have the Toll Puddle Martyrs. That's T-O-L-P-U-D-D-L-E. Uh, although Cruz admits that uh, perhaps urban actions like the Luddites, the Blanketeers, Chartists, the Peterloo Marchers... Uh, those are historically predominant and those have a more important effect on the direction of British history and class struggle, right? So, you know, credit, credit where credit is due there, right? Although there's no attempt to sort of follow that up. I guess that would be a whole different book, you know, just forget about this whole thing because the whole thing is about a very idealistic view of a pre, you know, specifically pre-Norman conquest Britain, the idea is that it's the it's the Norman conquest that actually fucked everything up. Before that, Britain was a classless, stateless society, which is not historically true, right? And that that forms part of the reason why a lot of these events are held at Stonehenge, and they hark back to an old Britain of King Arthur, right? And this could be uh, part of if if what. It would jive with Nobuko Albury's portrait of the Nick Albury character, if it is at all accurate. Uh, just, just for that, uh, let me go back to Nobuko's book. The moment that the Nick Albury Mishima character promises to give her a baby, he just says, I'll give you one. I'll give you a baby. Don't worry. And she sort of awkwardly, right? I tried to blow my nose again, but the paper napkin flew away as I exploded into a loud guffaw. It's crazy, absolutely crazy. Behave yourself, Mrs. Harder. Palm stretched halfway over the table, drew me closer with his hand on my nape, nape of my neck, kissed me on the mouth. I shut my eyes and opened my lips. Fire spread and singed me to unknown depths. If Palm had said, come with me, I'd have followed him to an airport hotel, to one of Notting Hill, one of his Notting Hill Gate crash pads, which is, that's exactly Notting Hill, is one of the places that the Nick Albury, uh, Nick Albury and his, his squatting movement were active. I gave you last time the, the scene where she does actually meet him in one of these crash pads. Uh, I would have followed him behind a park bench anywhere. A young voice, hardly a man's, was heard at a startling proximity. Lord Palm! Palm spun round, and without an intimation of embarrassment or surprise, beaming broadly, yelled back, Oh, hoy! 
His lips hardly cooled from our kiss. He burst into a laughter of pure masculine hilarity. The four young men in worn t-shirts, jeans, and gym shoes with rucksacks slung on their right shoulders stood to attention, their eyes on palm with the same intensity as police dogs on their handlers. No one paid the slightest attention to me. Palm asked them a series of short, rapid questions as to how they had managed to fly out of Paris. He was forcible and peremptory with them. But from the way his eyes lingeringly surveyed them, I spied a fierce and committed affection, the kind which I had not witnessed even between him and Jew. That's his wife, right? You've met Mrs. Harder, Richard, haven't you? Palm opened his wide chest toward me, reclining his head casually in my direction. Suki, this is Jim, and this is Chris, and Carl, Mrs. Harder. They each bowed with a stiff punctuation, adding no sociable smile or word. It was not hard to guess where Jim and Chris had been picked up, a West End karate club or a Hampshire stable. But as for Carl, I did not know where to place him. Sandy blonde, piercingly blue-eyed, with a deep cleft in his jutting, arrogant chin. He was so upright that he could have been kept in a narrow box throughout his growing years. Judging from the neck as spare as a flute, he must have been even younger than Richard, probably not yet eighteen. Suki, Palm took a small step toward me. Before he uttered a word, I knew I had been dismissed. Vanity made me speak before he did. Well, Palm, I say goodbye now. Lovely to have met you like this, Suki. He took my hand. I thought he was going to shake it, but he kissed me on both cheeks. As I turned to go, from the corner of my eye, I saw Palm gesture to the boys to sit down, himself yanking a chair and dropping onto it with an impatient, childlike alacrity. I felt a steel door being slapped shut in my face, sealing off a world of taut fraternity into which I could not have stuck a pin. Kenji used to imitate a Yakuza gangster he had seen in films. It's a man's world. Get lost, woman, he would say. Then, with a cruel frown, kick away an imaginary woman, presumed to be hanging onto his foot like a wet rag. It's a man's world. Get lost, woman. Every step I walked away from Palm and his soldier disciples became faster. By the time I reached the stairs, I was running, panting, as I waited in a slow-moving queue of cars to pay the parking charge, I recalled what Kenji had so often told me. Nothing nobler than a friendship of men sworn to die together, Asako. Believe me, that's why a samurai would not spend the night before a mortal battle in the company of women, mother or wife, always with men, equally doomed. Nothing to do with who's more important and such like. That is the way of manhood. Kenji is the name of her big brother, by the way, back in Japan. So there you go. That's a key, I think. I would like to recommend this to you as a, a key that opens the door to a gladio nexus that straddles Japan and Britain in the space of one connection, right? It's, it's one, literally uh, Nobuko and Ivan Morris were very close to Mishima. They met with Mishima and his Tatenokai disciples as well. If you know, all of these words that Nobuko writes about 
the Nick Albury character, she could easily have written about Mishima for obvious reasons. Mishima is more well-known in that regard. But she connects those two. And when you do connect those two, well, what does that do for the Cruzy book? This has been a free preview of a premium episode of the Kingless Generation podcast. If you get something out of this podcast, uh, you can pay just a very small amount to me each month and you get access to the full catalog of premium episodes as well as the Discord server where you can connect with your fellow members of the Kingless Generation. Uh, I have said before in the past I don't really need the money, but my situation is changing a little bit. I kind of could use the money. So I would like to ask you if you have a little to spare, uh, if you would buy me a coffee, if you would buy me a cup of tea, uh, please head on down to patreon.com and look for the Kingless Generation on there. I hope to see you on there. Thank you for listening in any case. Take care.